So we come this morning to Psalm 91, uh, the first six verses, as um, our message text this morning. And so I encourage you to open up your Bible, whether it's uh, electronic or analog, uh, whether it's digital or paper, uh, open it up and have the Word of God in front of you as we read it and then as we look at it and examine it as closely as we have the time to do so today. Psalm 91 verses 1 through 6. I actually hope that these words are very, very familiar to you because these are precious words for us uh, as we think about 2020, as we think about 2021. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Let's pray. God and Father, uh, we always need uh, such a great measure of your Holy Spirit when we come to your word. We recognize that um, the scriptures, uh, this book, is unlike any other book. Uh, it is not just simply uh, the greatest compendium of the most religious people with the greatest amount of insight ever. Uh, it's not the genius of the Jewish people for a religious kind of faith. It's not the high point of monotheism. It's not any of these kinds of accolades that the world has in times past, less so today, but in times past conferred upon the Bible. Our confession is different. We believe that the scriptures are themselves your word, your true and living word, that you are a God who's not silent. You are the God who has spoken. And therefore, in having your word to read and to listen to, to examine, to study, we have the very thing that gives us truth. We're not on a journey to discover truth. We're not on a journey to try to figure these things out. Our pilgrimage as Christians is not one of uh, discovery of this, discovery of that, sifting through different insights, keeping those which will best suit us and serve us as as uh, fallible and broken human beings. Father, it isn't that way, and we know it's not that way at all. We confess your scriptures divinely breathed out by you, and therefore every day at all times profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that each and all of us uh, would be fully equipped for every good work that you would call us to. So that's what we confess as we begin today, that this section of your word has much to teach us, much to reprove us, much to correct us, much to train us in righteousness so that we can more faithfully live your life. Do your work by your spirit through your word in us and with us today so that we can be salt and light to this generation in which we live. To the glory of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. 
So uh, just this week, I was reading a blog post uh, by a Christian author. And uh, so he said something very much like this. He said, it's not the case, as Marx said, I mean, you know, Karl Marx, the communist. It's not the case, as Marx said, that religion is the opium of the people. Rather, our faith is a wonderful coping mechanism. So let's think about that comparison. Uh, religion as a drug, uh, something that dulls your awareness to the world, something that medicates you beyond the pain, something that takes you out of the struggle emotionally and intellectually. That was Karl Marx's perspective. And then this other idea, coping mechanism. Well, what's a coping mechanism? Well, an authoritative online definition simply says this, are the strategies that people often use in the face of stress and or trauma to help manage painful or difficult emotions. Coping mechanisms can help people adjust to stressful events while helping them maintain their emotional well-being. So at the level of comparison, we should be able to say as Christians that our faith in the Lord Jesus, that our faith in him as our redeemer, uh, our faith is not to be compared to some kind of deadening drug. Rather, it's far more like a coping mechanism. That is to say that in the face of stress, even trauma, our faith in Christ does help us to navigate hard times. It does help us to maintain our emotional well-being. But as Christians, you and I should venture to say so much more than that. Our faith goes far beyond what any coping mechanism can ever do because it digs so much deeper into our emotional well-being because it digs into the very foundations of our life. We should be far more willing to call our faith a survival mechanism because our faith has taken us out of spiritual death, given us real life in Christ, and real life that's going to survive all of the things that will ever happen to us in this life. Our faith is the very thing that's going to carry us forward up to and through the evil of death, no matter how that's going to take place, to that greater and eternal life that comes beyond the grave. So this idea of faith, this idea of faith, faith as the very survival mechanism, faith as the very thing that takes us into the deepest experience of life because it connects us with God, this idea of faith, is really what we get out of this psalm. Because our faith, the Christian faith, our religion tells us that that's what it's going to do for us. In a word, we can say it this way. This faith supports the, or this psalm supports the idea that faith connects us to God in this way. That God has saved his people in order to give them his son as their dwelling place that we might enjoy this benefit always, but especially in the days of trouble. That is to say, our faith finds in Christ the place to shelter, the place to dwell, as our greatest and deepest benefit, which is especially vital in the days of trouble, like what we have experienced in 2020, and with respect to what we might anticipate in 2021, that our faith connects us to Christ, 
our faith connects us to the God who's given us Christ and given us Christ as our dwelling place, especially in these times of trouble. Now, the whole psalm speaks to that issue. Uh, all of Psalm 91 really connects that those ideas together. But I mainly want to use the first six verses to speak to this and to answer three particular questions. First, what is this shelter? What is it to dwell in this shelter, secondly? And then what is it to have a true faith in this shelter? Uh, those three questions, particularly from these six verses, to, to tell us that we have from God in the person of his son, the very place that we can dwell. And in dwelling in Christ, we will have everything we need to meet all the contingencies of life in days of trouble. So first question, what is this shelter? Well, as we've already said, the shelter of the Most High is Christ himself. And we have that upon the authority of Christ. In John chapter 15, I am the vine, uh, God is the vine dresser, you are the branches, that passage there. Now, Jesus says in verse four, abide in me and I in you, which is another way of saying uh, live in me, dwell in me. And then in verse five, he says, for whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you could do nothing. Jesus is the one who tells us that 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 we are to abide in him and and he in us. Now, much the same teaching, though in different words, is what we find the Apostle Paul saying in Colossians 3.3, where he says, you have died, that is, you've died to your former life, so therefore you now have a new life, and that new life is hidden with Christ in God. So our very lives are so connected to Christ, even hidden in Christ, that Christ is our dwelling place. He is our shelter. He is the place we are to live by virtue of the union that we have with Christ by faith. So God the Father has given us his Son as our very place to live. And this is both a present and an eternal benefit. Uh, the very good thing that God has done for us in his Son is to give us Christ as the place for us to abide, to dwell, to find shelter, to actually live. Now the psalmist describes this this uh, great need of this kind of sheltering because of how he depicts and describes the evil that we're going to face in this world and in this life. What he does is he divides evil between what we might call personal evil and impersonal evil and how both of these kinds of evils are sometimes visible, but most often they're invisible and we can't really see them coming against us. So look at verse three. Both of them are actually mentioned in verse three, where he says, for he, meaning God, will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. So first of all, this idea of the snare of the fowler, it's, you know, it's the idea of a trap. Uh, it's what, it's bird hunting language. Uh, it's a metaphor for how the wicked hunt the godly as their prey and they use their weapons to catch them. But we recognize that what they're using, what they use in their attack is going to come invisibly. We can't really see these traps. We can't really see these snares as we move 
forward and life. Uh, similarly, uh, verse 5, where um, the psalmist speaks of the arrow. There's always an archer, of course, who's going to shoot the arrow. There's always a wicked person who's going to perpetrate his evil against us. But arrows fly so swiftly that even if we happen to see one coming, uh, the speed is such that we can't humanly avoid it. Uh, no matter what ninjas can do, as Christians, we recognize that evil comes to us and against us at a speed that defies our ability most often to be able to avoid it. Evil perpetrators come, mostly unseen, but they are a real and present danger to our lives. Then back again in verse 3, the impersonal evil that the psalmist mentions. And again, the invisibility of this uh, impersonal evil. It's described as a deadly pestilence. And then in verse 6, that deadly pestilence is described as stalking in the darkness. And that's in parallel to what it says in verse 5 concerning the terror of the night. But what we learn from these descriptions is that both evils come from people and from impersonal forces. But most often, it's impossible for us to forecast or to predict or to see their coming. And even when we might see them coming, it's not possible in every case to prepare for them or to avoid them. Now, there's, a, there's an application as we read these verses to what has transpired in, in 2020 and what we need to anticipate as well in 2021. Think about impersonal evils. And we think about COVID as a deadly pestilence and pandemic that didn't we, we didn't see it coming. Now, we know a lot about pandemics, but the one thing we don't know is when they're going to break out. We don't know for how long they're going to last, and we don't really know how severe they're going to be. But think about other pestilences that come. California wildfires. We know that California is vulnerable to these fires, but we don't know ahead of time where they're going to break out. We don't know how bad they're going to be. We don't know when they're gonna happen. Uh, we know that earthquakes are going to come. We can't predict when. Radar can see hurricanes and tornadoes, but they can't yet foresee the damage they're going to inflict or the lives that are going to be taken. Diseases. We know a lot about cancer, but we can't say who the next cancer victim is going to be. Likewise for heart disease. We know that traffic fatalities are a true element of the risk of driving, but we don't know when one's going to happen. So we think about impersonal evil. We think about how it comes from the destructive forces of nature, or we see it also as a byproduct of human technology. Impersonal evil is real, but we can't see it coming. And it's very much a part of this fallen world. This is important for us to recognize. In regard to impersonal kinds of evil that occur in this world, the world is never going to get better. It's never going to become safer because of the curse. 
because of the fallen nature of this fallen world. It is humanly impossible to make this world a thoroughly safe place to live. And then think about personal evil. Uh, and here I think that the biblical descriptions are probably the best we should do when we want to describe persons who perpetrate evil. A couple of months ago, we looked at this passage, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, where there's something like 19 descriptors of the evil that shows up in human beings, where Paul writes, but understand this, that in the last days, there are going to be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Or the similar list that we find in Romans chapter 1, 29 to 31, where Paul writes concerning the fallen and depraved human race, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, evil, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The important idea, concept that we need to take from this is that personal evil is just as much a part of this fallen world as is impersonal evil, and maybe even more so. It is humanly impossible to make this world safe from human evil. It is beyond human ability to make human beings better creatures. But it's not for a lack of knowledge as what it would to what it would take. It's not because we don't know the answer. Back in 1969, in a 2-minute and 40-second hit single, Janet, excuse me, Jackie DeShannon told the world what the world needed to know. She sang, "Think of your fellow man, lend him a helping hand, Put a little love in your heart. You see, it's getting late. Oh, please don't hesitate. Put a little love in your heart and the world will be a better place for you and me. Just wait and see. Another day goes by. Still the children cry. Put a little love in your heart. If you want the world to know we won't let hatred grow, put a little love in your heart and the world will be a better place each and every day. Put a little love in your heart for there's no other way. Put a little love in your heart. It's up to you. Put a little love in your heart. Come on, put a little love in your heart. You've got to put a little love in your heart. But of course, everyone knows this. But fallen human beings are not capable of doing this. We are not capable of putting that love in our hearts. 
we know the good that ought to be done. We cannot do the good that ought to be done because the evil in us is stronger than any kind of good we would ever purpose to do. And that's the fallenness of the human race. And that's why you and I live in such a risky world. We can't make the world a better place. And therefore, we should never be surprised when we see the outbreaks of evil. We can't, we can't create a world that's going to protect us from our fellow human man, our fellow human beings. Whether it's the forces of nature or whether it's man's inhumanity to his fellow man, it is beyond our ability as human beings to create a shelter that will keep us from all evil. But we're Christians. We have Jesus. He is our shelter and the place to abide. So then the second question is, what is it to dwell in the shelter? What is the meaning here? Well, the psalmist uses two words. He talks about dwelling. He talks about abiding. And these words actually mean the same thing. They always have the basic idea that connects to this, this thing of remaining or staying in a particular place. So what is it to dwell in the shelter of the Most High? What is it to abide in the shadow of the Almighty? How do we see this in Christ? Well, the simple answer has been given to us by the Apostle Paul in various places, said in various ways. Let me point you to two. In Philippians 1.21, the Apostle Paul says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, think about that. Paul says that for him to live is Christ. To live is to live in Christ, with Christ, for Christ, before Christ. To live in fellowship with Christ, in communion with Christ. To live with Christ is the fullness of his life. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What the Apostle Paul is telling us is, the best understanding of the Christian life is to see Jesus as the person that we're living with and the person that we're living for. I don't like the term significant other. <laughs> but as a Christian, although I have a wife, I have a most significant other with whom I live and dwell and abide, and that is Christ. That's how we ought to see this. We as Christians, we have all of our deep and abiding human commitments, but we have Christ as the one who is most significant. 
and he is the one with whom we are to live and dwell and to abide. And that's Paul's idea. We live with Christ. We live for Christ. Christ lives with us. Christ lives in us. For us to live is Christ. And to that we can add the teachings of Jesus. In John chapter 14, uh, which is a most interesting place to consider with respect to this, we have the idea stated of abiding, which is the verb, and abode, which is the noun. These two words connected in the Greek language in the same way that we have the words in English to abide, to abode and abode, dwelling and dwelling place. It's the significant theme of John chapter 14, where Jesus begins by telling his disciples that in his father's house, there are many abodes. There are many dwelling places. He's speaking, of course, of the next life that Jesus goes to prepare a place for us, and he will come and receive us to that dwelling place in his father's house in heaven. But then Jesus goes on to speak of that same reality for this life as well. So in John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home, that is, we will make our abode with him. We will make our abiding with him. We will make our dwelling place with him. So to dwell in the shelter of, of the Lord Jesus is to see Christ as our home, as the place where we live, as the person who is most significant in our lives, the one who we live with, the one that we live for. Now, I think about the context of this year, and it's in light of how difficult this year has been that I, I want to raise this question. If as a Christian, what we've just described doesn't seem real to you, we need to think about what does that mean? Why is it so? You and I know that the Christian life has its ups and downs. The, the Bible leads us to understand that. And we can be deeply distressed and therefore stressed, even traumatized, over the evil, evil that we see in this world and the evil that we experience in this world. But we have to remember this. You and I have a spiritual soul that needs to be taken care of. And it is possible in the face of all of the impersonal evil and all the personal evil, it's so possible for us to neglect Jesus and to allow the cares of the world to interfere with our relationship with him. And when I've asked Christians about their experiences through this year, when I've read what other pastors have discovered asking the same kind of questions. Here is, above everything else, the most common denominator. It is the listening to the unreliable voices of the world 
far more than the listening to the voice of Jesus in the scriptures. In other words, it's pretty much the consensus of biblical pastors that the church has suffered more during this past year because believers have, in fact, dwelt more and abided more in the world than they have abided in Christ. They've listened more to the voice of the world, the information from the world, than they've listened to the scriptures, the very word of God. And you see, we lose the benefit of God giving his son to us to be our shelter in an evil world when we are not sheltering in him. Not that this means we lose our salvation, but it does indicate that we have set aside fellowship and communion with Christ. We've chosen to walk more in the darkness of the world than in the light of Christ. That is to say that in this very difficult season, we have often more conformed to the patterns of this world rather than giving our minds the renewal and the transformation that they've needed by the word of God. And that brings us then to our third question. What is it to have true faith in this shelter? And for this, we need to remind ourselves of the nature of true and saving faith. All of us need to be reminded of this from time to time, that true and saving faith has three necessary and interrelated parts. Uh, the first part of faith relates to the area of content. The first part of faith is, is what is it that we believe? And the second part of faith is that of assent. That is to say, we recognize and we agree that this content is true. The third part of faith then is trust and reliance, which is to say that we are personally depending upon this faith or personally depending upon this thing that we believe and confess to be true. Now it's verse two then that takes us to this understanding of true faith. For the psalmist says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God and whom I trust. In the first and second place, the psalmist is telling us that in this confession, he's telling us what he understands, what he believes to be true. He knows that God, Yahweh, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God of Israel, is the only God, and he is the true and living God. He knows this with certainty that God is a refuge and a fortress, but he's telling us more. He is saying that he is trusting in this God. He has made this God his own refuge, his own fortress. He doesn't just believe that the Most High is a shelter. He doesn't just believe that the safest place to be is in the shelter of, of the Almighty. He has actually and truly acted on that conviction by trusting in God to be his refuge and to be his fortress. He has trusted by actually living and dwelling and abiding in this shelter. And so once again, Christian brother and sister, 
if this doesn't feel real to you, what does it mean? It means that with respect to the nature of faith, we have ceased to trust. We have ceased to depend upon and to rely upon that which we know is true. Now, that does not unsave us, but it is a drifting away. It's a drifting away from our profession. When I was a Baptist, we call this backsliding, sliding back into our former way of lives as if the presence and promises of God were not really true. And the answer for backsliding is repentance, which means in the life of a Christian to return to a living and abiding trust in Christ. It means to return to Christ as our most significant other. It means to seek his fellowship. It means to seek his presence. It means to return to the reading and hearing and listening of his word, his voice, in preference to all the other voices of the world. It means to live again in such a way that we can say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ. In our hymnal, there are a number of hymns that actually touch upon this theme in various ways. None does it better than that hymn from Charles Wesley, Jesus, lover of my soul. He writes, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, oh, leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with is the shadow of thy wing. And so I encourage you. Take the words of the psalmist with you into this new year. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Amen. Our God and Father, we thank you for giving us your Son, our Lord Jesus, as our shelter, as your shadow of the Almighty in whom we can dwell and abide. And we pray that we would. We pray that we would return more vitally, more vigorously to our fellowship and communion with Christ so that we would live with him, living in him, finding in Jesus the truest home for our hearts at all times, and that we would be listening to his voice, uh, reading his word, spending our time talking to him about the cares of the world far more than political pundits or commentators of the day. Our God, we need to go into 2021 uh, knowing that Christ is our refuge, that Christ is our fortress, and that 
It is in him that we would trust. By your spirit, by your word, enable us to do so, we pray. In our Savior's name, amen.